The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the History of Gear, we share a panel discussion from our Outdoor History Summit, moderated by Dr. Rachel Gross with historians Dr. Phoebe Young and doctoral candidates Sarah Pickman and Jesse Rittner. So glad to be here with all of you, and thanks to the previous sets of panelists who have uh, provided us a lot to think about over the course of this morning. Um, I've been lucky to be involved with the Utah State, uh, you know, Outdoor Recreation Archive, um, and working with Chase and Clint for a number of years. Um, I'm a historian of the outdoor industry, so. I write about the history of outdoor gear and clothing from the Civil War to the present. Uh, my uh, book that I'm working on traces that history from buckskin all the way to Gore-Tex. And I am reliant, like all of my panelists here, on the collections in, at universities, at libraries, and at corporate archives to do this kind of research. And that's precisely what we'll be focusing on today with three researchers and historians whose work I admire and I've made use of uh, in my own writing and thinking. We've called our panel Beyond Return on Investment, How Historians Use Archives to Tell Stories. Now, what you've heard so far today is um, ways to make these collections possible, how to translate the importance of these collections in corporate settings, how to reach popular audiences with certain materials or photographs. All of these things are really important. And we're adding another piece to this story of the Outdoor Recreation Archive by looking at people who use these archives for their work on a day-to-day basis and what kinds of arguments they can make with these materials what kinds of broader context they can bring to an old pair of boots or a catalog from 50 or 100 or 150 years ago. You're going to hear from these three historians. They're going to share a bit about their own research uh, um, work, their experiences in archives, um, and offer some kind of ways of understanding what historians actually do when we sit down in front of a collection and why that's important, perhaps, um, for your own collection. If you want to get the word out to a broader audience, we're often the ones to do that kind of translating. So we're going to start uh, with Professor Phoebe Young at CU Boulder, then we'll move on to Jesse Rittner at the University of Texas, Austin, and then finally Sarah Pickman at Yale University. Each of these historians are going to briefly introduce their research and some brief experience of their archival materials, what kinds of collections they're drawing on. And then I have a number of questions that we've all prepared together that they'll walk through with all of you. So um, Phoebe, I invite you to start. Thank you, I'm really thrilled to be here um, and thrilled to uh, learn about uh, the Moss Collection uh, among others and uh, to say that uh, I you know, actually only found out about the uh, Outdoor Recreation Archive after I finished um, my recent book um, on the history of camping and sleeping outside. Uh, and so I hopefully will you know, be able to use it to spawn um, maybe another project. Um, but anyway, what I would like to share is uh, some of my experiences in um, archives for uh, the book that I recently finished um, called Camping Grounds, um, uh, which is about the history of recreational as well as functional and political camping. Um, and I relied on a, a mix of government records, particularly the National Park Service, personal papers, published guidebooks, outdoor magazines like Outing and Popular Science and Backpacker, organizational archives at places like the National Outdoor Leadership School, as well as corporate files from Scribner's um, to Coleman. 
Um, and this allows us to use a mix of archives to get, you know, multiple perspectives and to see what's going on in different parts of the chronology. Um, but it's kind of uneven, right? What you get in each kind of archive is different. Um, and what I'd like to call attention to today is a particular divide between government records and personal papers, where you get kind of the backstory and, and the messy process um, of uh, developing perspectives and, and negotiating uh, releases and events. Um, whereas in published uh, pieces and corporate materials, you tend to get more of the kind of finished public version, right, that gets put out and it's harder to access um, the how and the why they get produced. Now, analytically, there's plenty of good ways to read and interpolate and, and sort of closely look at uh, those uh, published pieces. Um, and I have an example here of that uh, is, is from the Coleman collection. Um, I did not get an opportunity to spend time doing research um, at Coleman. It was not open to researchers when I was beginning this project um, a dozen years ago or so, other than a small museum in Wichita um, and a small collection of materials at the University of Kansas. Um, and there at Kansas, I found materials like this on the left-hand side of the slide. Um, company communication to stores that carried Coleman lamps and stoves. This booklet contained sample ads um, that they could literally cut out uh, and send uh, into newspapers, suggestions for promotions, how to get stories placed in local newspapers. And this allowed me to see kind of their advertising strategies, the shift from marketing for functional uses in rural households to a recreational market. But there were no internal memos about those decisions, right? That I didn't have access to that backstory. Um, it could have made it even a richer part of the book um, and, and a larger part of the book. But because there was only a small amount of material available, there was only so much I could do with it. Um, and I think this is true. I found this in other organizations as well, that there's sort of understandable reluctance sometimes to share um, records, right? Um, uh, but it requires us to make more inferences. And I think I got them right but I can't check it against um, the actual uh, documents. Now, the other side of the spectrum is the National Archives, right? Um, and I'm talking about the National Park Service record group, um, where basically the government is required to save everything, right? And there's an overwhelming volume of material. Um, but it gives us access to those kinds of things that perhaps the government would prefer not to reveal. Um, so, for example, every park uh, has two file categories, um, a, a file of compliment letters and a file of complaint letters. And I, I'm sure you can guess which one is the thicker file. Um, and perhaps we could understand under other circumstances that maybe the government wouldn't want to um, expose um, those complaints, right? That it worry that we might expose missteps or problems, right? But what I found is that it allowed me to tell a much more complete history. And I have an example of that here um, on the right-hand side of a, a complaint letter from a citizen. Uh, Francis Archer from Santa Fe, New Mexico, wrote to the Interior Secretary Stuart Udall in 1966 about Big Band National Park in Texas. And she starts out by saying she was a great admirer of the park system, a staunch conservationist, and a visitor to many parks. But then she goes on to express her great disappointment to see more and more building going on and asked, why must the parks take this beautiful section and ruin it by building cabins, filling stations, and hotels? And is it not the main purpose of the national park system to keep those beautiful sections of our country unspoiled by commercialism? But then on the bottom page that you see here, she appends a PS. I forgot to say that the practice of letting the operating rights to just one oil company in a park such as Big Bend is most inconvenient for the visitor. Even though she had eight credit cards, she didn't have a golf card. And so she complained she could not charge her gasoline and being short of cash was forced to go outside the park to buy gasoline. A couple weeks later, an assistant director um, wrote her back uh, with uh, explanations of you know, how their approach to try to accommodate visitors without overcrowding, um, but also uh, to try not to place visitor facilities in places where they might intrude or change the basic values of the park, and noted that they regret that uh, she was inconvenienced because she couldn't use her credit card. Now, reading exchanges like this over and over again in the 1950s and 1960s was extremely revealing of visitors who wanted their nature and convenient gasoline too, um, of a park service constantly trying to meet visitors' rising expectations and overwhelming demand, and to manage the tension between the two competing objectives of its mission, right? To conserve the scenery and to make it accessible for visitors' enjoyment. 
So seeing this inside exchange really added an important layer to my analysis of the expansion of camping during this era and the ways in which the kind of aggressive promotion of the parks in the 20s and the rapid construction of campgrounds in the 30s, 40s, and 50s led to this dilemma. What another slightly more self-aware visitor to Glacier National Park called in 1964 a vicious circle. So far from skewering either park visitors or the agency itself, this review, sort of reviewing this high volume of this back and forth conversation allowed me to craft a picture of a federal agency struggling to meet citizens' high and growing expectations. So both kinds of documents, published material, internal correspondence, necessary to create the fullest histories that we can. Um, and so looking at what some might see as mundane bureaucratic memos or overly revealing complaints are crucial really um, to our ability to tell these stories. And so whether seemingly routine or maybe a little bit risky, I recommend that scholars consult multiple kinds of records and urge outdoor rec uh, organizations to make as many of them available to us as they can. Thanks. Thanks so much, Phoebe. Um, and if you all already didn't see that in the chat, we have a link to um, an article covering the release of uh, Phoebe's recent book. So I recommend it to everyone. I've learned a lot from it, even as someone who has spent uh, more than a decade also uh, with this type of material. So um, a really great read. Um, next up, we have um, Jesse Rittner, um, who is going to share also about his research and his experiences with archival material. Hi, um, hi everyone. I am going to uh, share my screen well, real quickly. Um, okay, so to start, uh, I just want to uh, second uh, Rachel's endorsement of Dr. Young's book. It's great. Um, I read it recently and it was, uh, it really changed the way I'm thinking about my work. So you should all read it. Um, so I'm gonna begin talking about um, resources that I used a lot more than I expected. I was, I'm a graduate student. I was funded to do my research over the past year, unsurprisingly to I'm sure many of you, I had very limited access to physical archives. And so I really had to sort of change what I was using. Um, and so anything that could be digitized was really key to me. So for a little bit of context, I write on the US ski industry. Uh, my, so I, I focus really on the corporations themselves, their relationship to other outdoor technologies. So snowmaking, grooming, any sort of anything else you would see used on a ski area, and then their relationship to public lands as well. So you sort of have this and, and they sort of work in a, in a triangle in a lot of ways, uh, with consultants in the middle. So Currently, the documents I'm using are really periodicals that are digitized, their government records, and their oral histories. Um, Dr. Young has already talked about government documents a little bit, so I'm not going to go into those and bore you all. Instead, I'm going to talk about oral histories and how they're used by, by historians, often like us. Um, and I know from the, the first panel that there are some companies out there that are doing oral histories. So I'm very happy to, to hear that. So what do historians do with oral histories and what don't they do? So the first example I'm going to give is an example of the ways in which oral histories are totally unreliable sources. This is an oral history I did early on with Kathy Rosen, who in full disclosure is my mom, but has been skiing in the East since the mid 1950s. So has a long experience skiing. So I was asking her specifically about snowmaking and she swore to me that she'd never skied on artificial snow until the late 1970s or early 1980s, which was surprising to me because artificial snow is invented in 1950. So that's a, a long time to go. So she talked about skiing at Bristol in New York, which never opened without artificial snow. In fact, one of the founders of Bristol is also the founder of an early snowmaking company. She described Killington in the early 1970s, which had installed snowmaking in 1963, and at Vail in 1980, which had installed permanent snowmaking in 1970. So this tells us a lot about snowmaking and people's relationship to it. Uh, it's, 
it's equally important that she doesn't remember or simply was unaware that what she was skiing on is artificial snow, especially because people talk so negatively about it when they're aware they're skiing on it. But if it's not visual to them, it seems from the oral histories I've done and just talking to people on chairlifts and in gondolas and whatnot, that they often think the snow is great, provided no one has put it in their mind that it is um, artificial. That said, oral histories can tell us other things that are really useful when thinking about how companies are formed and how they relate to industries on a larger level. So the example I'm going to give you is a way that I've found really effective to trace social networks between ski areas and the U.S. Forest Service, which tells me a lot about who's talking to who and how decisions are being made. So this interview is uh, in the ski archive at the University of Utah, which is a, a huge collection of oral histories and other paraphernalia from the Utah ski industry. So Zane Doyle was interviewed who founded Brighton, which is uh, right outside Salt Lake City. And he talked a little bit about his relationship with Felix Koziel, who was early on the supervisor of the Wasatch Nat National Forest. So Doyle noted, and I'm quoting here, this is on the left side of the screen for you, Koziel would come up and they would go over everything, walk them out and decide where to go, where the trails are and how to improve it. So what he's really talking about is that the forest supervisor came out, they went skiing in a day or two, they decided where they were going to put everything versus now where you have environmental impact statements, you need master plans, so on and so forth. Uh, expanding or building a ski resort at this point is a five to 10 year process rather than a 48 hour process. So this has changed a lot. Um, unsurprisingly, Doyle was not all that happy about it as a ski resort owner. So what this really told me though, is that Koziel is famous for founding Alta and for being involved with the founding of Jackson Hole, as well as almost every ski area around Salt Lake City. But for my purposes, later in the interview, Doyle actually talks about uh, being at a meeting at Brighton between Koziel and Paul Hulk, who was the head of the White River National Forest for a long time in Colorado, which is incredibly important in the history of skiing. That's where Vail, Aspen, Breckenridge, Copper, all of these I-70 ski areas are that now dominate the ski industry in many ways. And so the interview helped me trace this relationship between two Forest Service supervisors. So I can now go, okay, the Forest Service in Utah is talking to the Forest Service in Colorado. And rather than being two separate histories, which is often how this is depicted in books, it's actually one history. It also tells me that ski area owners were talking to Forest, Super forest Service supervisors, sorry, outside of the actual forest they were located. So this goes the other way too. The supervisors are well aware of what other forests are doing, of what those forest supervisors are like, and may be willing to use this information in order to get what they want or demonstrate how something is successful or unsuccessful as they bargain for a bigger ski resort. Uh, when this also raised questions, so I started tracing this further, I found that Paul Hawk was also talking to the supervisor of the Coconino National Forest, which is where uh, Arizona Snowball is, which is the fourth oldest ski area in the country. Harry Miller in the Green Mountain National Forest was also talking to these people. Um, and so you really start to flesh out a national sense of, of the industry and the people who are involved in it, who in this case... The, the Forest Service members actually found a lot of these ski areas. So they really are the founders of the ski industry in some ways. So for, uh, and, and this was talked about a little bit in the first um, panel, but one of the reasons I think oral histories are a great thing that, that companies could do is First of all, they really don't take that long. It rarely takes you more than one to three hours to interview someone unless you are really getting into the nitty gritty of every moment of their life. 
With transcription softwares, it usually takes two to three hours per hour of interview to transcribe, which may sound slow, but without those softwares, it takes 10 to 15 hours. Um, So we're really getting quicker in that. But perhaps more importantly, they don't take any physical space. So the amount of capital you need to invest to preserve these things is very small. You just need a little bit of a hard drive on a computer or a... Um, you know, external hard drive or something like that. They're also easy to share because you can just email them. So people do not have to come to where you are. That makes it more accessible for researchers, especially graduate students. But I think increasingly all of us finding the time and money to travel is increasingly hard. And so the easier it is to access something, if it's digitized, really the more likely it is to be used by historians outside of your company. In terms of actually who to interview, for me, anyone over 50 is fair game. And I say this in part because people's uh, memories start to go, especially as they reach uh, 70 and over, both because uh, their minds may be deteriorating, but also because they're getting older. And you you only have space for so many memories when push comes to shove. Um, and interviewing sort of people from 50 to 70, you can see that their memories just don't go quite as far back. They also give you, doing that span gives you a better sense of the industry you're in and your company over time. Because as people rise or fall in sort of these statures, you're going to get very different stories about what's happening and very different experiences. So sort of to just sum up a little bit. Um, Oral histories are easy to access, they're easy to share, they're easy to store, and they're really effective ways to begin forming an archive. If you do not have one, I am sort of forming my own, collecting these oral histories, or simply to build on your archives and add sort of a a piece of historic memory and really uh, a personal edge to the stories you're collecting. And I'll leave it there. Thanks, Jesse. Um, and as you saw, uh, folks in the chat, uh, his latest article, White Gold, Snowmaking, Resort Growth, and Skier Experience in the U.S. East, 1945 to 1971, um, is just out this week. So you can have the first crack at, uh, at seeing the cutting edge research in this area. Uh, finally, uh, Sarah Pickman, uh, please uh, share with us your research and your experiences with archival material. Great. Thank you, Rachel. Um, I'm just going to share my screen. See if I can get that full screen. Great. Um, uh, thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you, Phoebe and Jesse. Um, I'm so thrilled to be on this panel with all of you. And um, thank you to Chase and Janine at Range and um, all of the folks who put together today's summit. It's been fantastic. Um, I've loved learning from everybody on the other panels so much and from the folks in the chat. Um, so I'm going to keep this brief and just tell you a little bit about my research. And I want to build on some of the things that Phoebe and Jesse brought up in terms of the way that I've uh, approached some of my archival research and the ways in which um, I've benefited from practices that certain archives have had in place that have helped me and I think could help a lot of other researchers as well if they're things that that you're thinking about doing with your own archives. So for my dissertation, the way that I describe it is I say that I unpack packing. And what I mean by that is I'm interested in the stuff that British and American explorers took with them on expeditions, especially expeditions to what we would think of as extreme environments during the 19th and early 20th centuries, roughly from about 1820 to 1930 or 1935. And uh, my first love was uh, the polar regions and looking at polar explorers, but I've really expanded to look at um, alpinists, um, people going to tropical areas, leading expeditions to deserts, and and these kinds of what we would call extreme places. And I'm interested in three big questions, uh, one of which is, what did these explorers think of as the essential comforts of home? So in this time period when going on these kinds of expeditions and outdoor recreation were very new in Western society, what were the things that they considered essential to bring with them and to recreate their home cultures uh, in the field to a certain extent, especially at a time when there were a lot of social changes happening in their um, home nations of Britain and the UK? Uh, also, I'm interested in how uh, advertisers during the during the time period that I look at in the 19th and early 20th centuries used images and rhetoric of exploration to sell products to mainstream consumers. 
So I have a, an example of that in the center of this slide, which is a trade card from the um, uh, Taunton Ironworks Co., which was a stove manufacturer near Boston advertising their Quaker Junior stove ranges. Um, and they're advertising it with an image and the text is a little hard to see on the right, but it's meant to evoke the Greeley expedition, which was an American uh, government sponsored uh, polar expedition uh, that went from 1881 to 1884 to the Canadian Arctic and to Greenland. Um, so this is an example of a company and there are many, many others that uh, capitalized on the popularity of exploration of explorers during this time period to sell things to every consumers who would definitely not be venturing to the Arctic, probably would not be going any further than perhaps a, a local um, park, uh, state park uh, on a weekend trip. Um, the Greeley expedition ended in cannibalism. So maybe a stove uh, ad was like not the, the best choice, but they couldn't have known that in, uh, in 1881 when this trade card was made. Um, and uh, what kinds of things, uh, what kinds of legacies uh, the idea of exploration, of being an explorer, leading an expedition had for the outdoor recreation industry and the kinds of things that we're still left with when we talk about exploring um, what an expedition is. And over to the right-hand corner, I've got a Abercrombie and Fitch catalog from 1913. Um, and again, this is kind of from the time period that I'm, I'm looking at, but they're selling something even at that time called an explorer's tent that's meant to make you think, you know, even if you are just getting your toes wet in uh, camping and hiking, that you too could be an explorer. And so what does that mean for, um, for our culture and for outdoor recreation in general, given the complicated legacies of exploration, and especially its connections to things like um, colonialism? And so because I look at um, early sources, mostly things from the 19th and very early 20th centuries, I tend to be looking at companies and at products that do not have brand archives. Um, I'll just give you an example. One of my dissertation chapters is about the Macintosh company uh, that was started by Charles Macintosh, a Scottish chemist, uh, who's credited with coming up with the first truly waterproof, impermeable, mass-produced textile um, made with rubber. And so if you are familiar with the term Mac that they use in the UK to talk about a raincoat, that's where that comes from. It's, it's his name, uh, Macintosh, because his company was so ubiquitous. And Macintosh products were used by a lot of explorers, but first of all, they weren't a company that was catering to the outdoor market. They were mostly selling raincoats to ordinary consumers, people who lived in London and just wanted to not get wet walking around on their commute or running errands. Uh, but also, there was, this was a company that was started in the 1820s. They didn't have the foresight to create a brand archive. Um, I've talked to a lot of people and no one seems to have Charles McIntosh's papers or the company records. If they haven't been destroyed, they might be in some attic somewhere waiting to be discovered at some point. We just don't know. So I've had to do a lot of triangulation around trying to track down these kinds of records. Um, one of the places that I've looked uh, are the city archives in the city of Manchester, where Macintosh's factory was. Um, there's quite a good amount of material that I've been able to find there. I saw some folks earlier in the chat were here from the London College of Fashion. I don't know if they're still on, uh, on the summit, but uh, I did a lot of research there looking at their amazing collection of menswear trade journals where Macintosh coats, raincoats are discussed at length. And especially when they start to get compared to other newer kinds of textiles um, in the early 20th century. And then another place that I've looked at is um, the Kew Botanical Gardens in London, which has an economic botany collection that was started in the 19th century. They were interested in um, economic applications of different plants. And of course, rubber comes from a plant. Um, so the archivist there, Mark Nesbitt, was able to um, provide me with some amazing materials and some actual samples of Macintosh fabric that they had in their collection alongside preserved samples of rubber plants from the 19th century. So all this is to say that um, sometimes, especially looking at really, really early companies and really early brands, it can be tricky to find some of these materials. They might be scattered, um, which is why it's so great to see uh, really old brands like Carhartt and Levi's that do have that connection all the way back to the 19th century. Um, but I also want to put out um, a plea um, as building out uh, on what Jesse said before for digitization, because this is something where... Um, uh, this can be really, really helpful for researchers, not just because of um, limitations on travel time, on financial ability to travel, 
uh, COVID, all of these things that restrict travel for historians to particular archives, but because digitizing things um, can make things much, much easier to find, especially if you're trying to triangulate between different archives. Um, to that end, I would also add, I know that digitization projects are um, quite time consuming and cumbersome and you need the money to do them. So even just to have digitized finding aids that are text searchable online is hugely, hugely helpful for researchers. Another thing that, um, that I would put out there is to be active on social media. I found out about the Utah State collection through Instagram, and it's been a huge and tremendously fantastic resource for me. Um, but even something, as I mentioned, like getting in touch with the folks at the Kew Botanical Gardens to do some research on rubberized fabric, that was because I had, I'm active on Twitter and I just tweeted out, you know, I'm, I'm looking for examples of rubberized fabric from the 19th century. Does anybody have any in their collections? And Mark Nesbitt fortunately was on Twitter saw my tweet and we were able to connect in that way. Um, and that's happened to me a number of times. The other thing that I would say is that um, it's helpful as you're thinking about your own archive and your own brand um, archive to make connections with other archivists. Because um, I can't tell you the number of times where I've talked to an archivist and said, I'm looking for this stuff, this is my project. And they've said, well, we don't really have some of that or we've got some of that. Uh, but you might also want to talk to so-and-so at this place or that place. Um, so to, to help us leverage your own professional network of other archivists um, and other, um, other folks who are involved with brand preservation would just be fantastic. And then my, my final thing, um, uh, which I'll just throw out there as a, again, as a sort of like, you know, wish list or a, a plea to some of the archivists um, who are out there listening is that if it's possible to do certain um uh, certain kinds of partnerships with um, digitization services, that can also be a great route. I've benefited tremendously from the digitization of the Royal Geographical Society collection, which was recently um, accomplished through a partnership with the Wiley publishing firm. And they've made a text searchable um, digitized collection of all their collections. Um, and that's what I, what I wanted to end with, which is to say that it can be quite difficult looking at some of these published materials, as um, Phoebe gestured to earlier, to be able to get to some of the consumer perspectives. You know, we know what the finished product was, we know what the um, what the advertisements look like, what the catalogs look like, but what did people actually think of when they were using this gear? And using the RGS collections, for example, I was able to find this receipt. Um, this, this is from a store called James Howell. Uh, it was a drapery store or um, department store in Cardiff in Wales in the UK. And this is a receipt associated with the 1924 British Everest expedition. Um, and it was a receipt for a purchase by the expedition leader, whose name was General C.G. Bruce. And um, he ordered, it's a little difficult to see, but he ordered five shirts. And then there's a handwritten note here on the bottom, which I've blown up here that says, these are absolutely necessary, which again tells me sort of reading between the lines um, and being familiar with these materials is that somewhere along the way, somebody was putting their finger down and saying, this expedition's gone over budget. Do we really need to bring all of this stuff? Why do you need to bring nice shirts from a department store, um, not something from an outfitter like Abercrombie or Benjamin Silver? Um, and so he's saying, look, I really need these shirts. Somebody's going to have to pick up the tab for these if I'm going on this expedition. So those kinds of serendipitous finds are really amazing. Um, and this was only possible because I had access to this digitized collection through my own academic library. So, um, so I'll stop there. And uh, I think the, the four of us can have a conversation. Wonderful. Thank you, Sarah. Um, part of what I've heard highlighted from the researchers so far is that Historians' professional training allows them to figure out missing stories, right? Because though we've all over the last three hours heard about the, the power of archives and the importance of them, not everything will always be there. And that's part of what historians can do. Um, Sarah ended on um, a, with a, her, her little talk with some ideas about um, increasing the access of archives or what makes them uh, available to historians and useful. So I'd love to hear first from Phoebe, then from Jesse, what... You've mostly shared success stories, right? Because you've been able to translate archival collections into published research and arguments. Um, what kinds of barriers to access did you encounter? What, what kinds of trouble did you have with archival collections? Why do you think it's important to increase the access and invisibility of the material that you have been looking for for the last many years? Yeah, well, um, 
I, I alluded to this at the beginning, but so I tried when, at the, when I was just first sort of working on this book, like I said, more than a dozen years ago, to get in touch with folks at Coleman. Um, and I didn't over the last couple of years. So my information in this case is, is old, but they just, they, you know, were not set up for um, researchers. They had donated this small amount, uh, seven archival boxes or three linear feet to Kansas, but they kind of were like, that, that's it. That's all we can do. And so it was disappointing because I originally had sort of thought that Coleman would make a really interesting story and, and to feature in the book. And it's still in the book. It's just not as large as, as it would have been. Um, other issues, you know, with some places that, you know, understandably want to hold parts of an archive back, right, for privacy concerns or something, but couldn't kind of come to an agreement about, well, if you let me have access to this, I, I won't reveal individual names. I just want to look at the demographics, right, of this particular, you know, population of, of people who are, are joining your organization. So that sometimes is, is and, and I, I both get the sort of reluctance and the risk that, that these sort of companies might be taking on and doing that. And it, trust me, I'm a professional historian. I'm, you know, going to do what I, I you know, I'm not going to do what I said I'm not going to do. Um, but so that was a barrier. I mean, but then the other one is, um, I, uh, prior to my book coming out, I really wasn't on social media, certainly not for work purposes. I'm, I'm Jesse, you could email me, uh, you could interview me, I'm 50. So I'm a little bit um, not on the sort of haven't been on Twitter until very recently and my publicist told me I should be. And so like, I think that's really interesting that this has become this new way to find out. I mean, that's literally how Chase found me and told me about the Outdoor Archive because I wasn't on social media to find that out. And so it's, I think social media is a really good way to make those connections. And I think that story that you told Sarah about Q is, is terrific. Um, but I think it's also, right, that I think the older network of archivists, right, is one that a lot of us still rely on, especially if we're not um, super active or, or using social media for our research. Um, I mean, as I said before, uh, I mean, the major obstacle was the, the global pandemic um, that sort of looms large above everything in my research life at the moment. But I think that on a, on a more direct level, um, there were uh, certainly companies that were just sort of unwilling to share. I actually had one company that uh, uh, told everyone who had ownership stock in the company, which was pretty much anyone who had had, you know, anywhere close to a senior position in the company, that they would lose their stock options if they talked to me. Um, sort of just, I mean, before I even got to tell them what I was doing, right? Um, so please don't do that. <laughs> but the, uh, the biggest issue I faced is sort of uh, it, it's two things. One is that ski resorts are just bought and sold like nobody's business. Um, I mean, every five, 10 years for some of these places, there's new ownership. And so the when, when there isn't sort of something institutionalized to begin with, a lot of this stuff just gets trashed, right? So all of this stuff from the 50s and 60s and 70s when these places were family owned just don't seem to exist anymore. Um, the families don't seem to have it, right? Uh, the other thing is uh, sometimes just uh, really just a lack of interest. I mean, I've found companies that actually have a lot of stuff, especially companies, snowmaking technology companies tend to be family owned. They usually haven't been bought and sold. And I've sort of had these conversations where even people who have been willing to be interviewed have gone, oh, yes, we have this stuff, but it's sort of too much of a hassle. Um, so on some level, uh, even if, right, even if your stuff isn't organized, uh, historians will almost always be willing to just search through bins, file cabinets, you know, piles of papers and, and whatnot. Um, and then the other thing is uh, there's some trade journals. I found it very, very hard to find because they're not in archives um, and they're, they're not cost affordable to uh, a private researcher. I mean, places that are charging $1,500 for membership uh, and, and just keeping those could be, can be really valuable because they not only tell us what are in those 
uh, trade journals, they also let us know that companies are reading them, right? What companies are looking at, what's coming to them is often as important as what they're producing. Overall, you've heard these historians make a case for increasing access when that's possible, according to corporate goals, uh, legal reasons, and, you know, kind of general ability financially to maintain records. And I'd love to hear um, the panelists talk about what we as historians can add that isn't happening with the other kinds of people we've heard from today. So in other words, um, you know, people who are brand historians put on displays, share objects, write really excellent posts for the broader public about the material in their collections. What kinds of things are you adding to the work that already exists? And how would how would you make a case for saying like, here's what's valuable about what I can bring if you let me into your archival collection? Um, we'll start with Sarah and then uh, Phoebe and Jesse. Oh, put me on the spot. Um, I think some of these, this is maybe, maybe this is a kind of obvious answer, but there's a whole other audience. Um, I think that the, without patting the four of us uh, on the back too much, there, the field of the history of the outdoor industry is really, really young. Um, it's a really burgeoning field, um, but it spins off in so many different directions. There are so many different um, researchers, as well as, um, you know, not just people who are in graduate school or are established faculty, but undergraduate students, master's students, who um, even you know, the students um, at Utah State who are product designers themselves who are really interested in this history and want to be able to dig into it and who are connected to so many different scholarly communities. I mean, the four of us come from different backgrounds, history, history of science, museum studies, material culture studies. Um, my undergrad degree was in anthropology um, and lots and lots of people. We found other intersections, business history, um, uh, just on and on and on. Other scholarly colleagues who are interested in our work and who, you know, to, to be honest, maybe at the beginning, some of them were like, oh, outdoor industry, like, you know, I've, I've got a dissertation chapter on chocolate and I've, I've gotten, you know, kind of dismissive remarks as like, why do you care what, you know, explorers ate, what brand of chocolate they ate? Like, what does that have to do with anything? But once you start saying, actually, these things have really, really interesting and really important connections to, you know, to American history, to world history, to commodities, to histories of industry and business, they're like, oh, yeah, actually, this is this is really important. And so you open up the eyes of a lot of different scholars, up and coming researchers, students, um, by integrating all of this material on the history of outdoor recreation into what you do. So, um, so that would be that's just kind of broadening those communities would be one thing that I'd say. And I would just, I would sort of build on that. I think absolutely to think about, um, you know, students, not just sort of, uh, you know, us sort of growing, but still small cadre of right professional scholars, um, but that we do reach a lot of students who are in many different um, fields and are interested. And, and one of the things that, you know, uh, a lot of public agencies do um, that could be helpful if you're, you know, putting on an online exhibit that has been curated already so that we can see the kind of your final product, but to have a, a teacher's guide or a scholar's guide with it that either allows us to use that with our students, right, but also gives us a little bit of the, the kind of citation information um, and the background story of like, is this one example that you have or is this a sample of, you know, 27 other things that are like this particular advertisement, right, so that we have a sense of, you know, a, a, you know, a little bit of where this is coming from, how to contextualize it both for our students and if it's something we might be interested in following up on and adding to our own research. Um, I think part of, I mean, uh, to build, uh, I think part of what, what we offer is, is reaching different audiences and not only scholarly audiences. I think a lot of us publish for for broader audiences and uh, we get voices out there, whether on blogs for people in interested in the outdoors or through newspapers and digital media and all sorts of things. Um, I also think that there's a, an extent to which histories of the outdoor industry and outdoor recreation are read more broadly than just by academics. Um, I mean, I have a book on skiing right here that I see all the time in bookstores throughout Colorado um, and Utah and places like that, as I've traveled around researching. And so there is uh, a capacity to get these broader stories out there that, that really make 
you know, your company is a key part of these national narratives and global narratives that we're trying to, to tie into with our more scholarly work. Um, and I think there's a lot to be, to be said about the value of being part of those sort of larger stories and seeing the significance of these commodities, of these companies, of the, the sort of personal and structural developments that go with all of this. Yeah, and I'll just echo one of the points that you that you just heard, which is that um, there are other uh, historians who teach classes on outdoor recreation, the outdoor industry, the history of wilderness and public lands, all of whom use this type of work. And the more resources they have, often through the work of historians who are sharing and interpreting primary sources and putting them in a broader context, the richer those classes are, but also the more the stories about these individual companies get out there. So for instance, at large state universities like Colorado State, small liberal arts colleges like Bowdoin College, there are environmental historians who are sharing these kinds of works. Um, there's no clear, obvious return on investment immediately to have a 20-year-old, 19-year-old undergraduate graduate student reading about old advertisements from your company's past. But often that is the starting point for them to start thinking more deeply about what does it mean to be an authentic consumer in the outdoors? Why do I have these emotional attachments and why am I so passionate about a particular brand or another? That's where a lot of these ideas get worked out. Um, and I think the broader the range of stories we can include there through our own research and writing, the rich the education will be for this next generation of students. And I'll just highlight one other thing that we um, that we heard earlier in the day, which is that though many might immediately assume that the history of the outdoor industry dates to the 1970s and the boom of that era, um, all of the historians you just heard from reach back much further in their research and published writing. And so if you're trying to understand, okay, we know something about the last 30 or 50 years, but we don't understand where that comes from. These are the people who you want to turn to to understand that work um, dating back to the 19th century. I think we will finish up with um, either one other cool document or a great archival experience that each of you have had um, that kind of that helped inspire some of the work that you're doing. So what's yeah, what's a, what's a cool thing that you found or a good time that you had um, visiting a new archive? Um, Phoebe, uh, Sarah, and then Jesse. Okay, now I'm on the spot. Um, well, I already gave you some of my some of my good stories. Francis Archer's uh, complaint letters is definitely one of my uh, favorites uh, on that level. Um, but I will say there was when speaking of the sort of early stuff, I, I um, a lot of the 19th century uh, history of outdoor recreation right locates it in this you know wilderness craze. John, you are kind of late 19th century, H.H. Murray kind of discovering the wilderness moment. Um, but I really kind of had this hunch that there was some closer tie to the Civil War, other than it was just after the Civil War. Um, and so I sort of went around looking for published guidebooks um, by Civil War veterans um, to see, like, is there somebody out there? And so um, I actually can't remember entirely how I came across John Mead Gould's How to Camp Out from 1877. Um, but in any case, when I remember sitting alone uh, in my uh, little study. And, you know, when I was looking at it and then being able to look up his uh, Civil War record um, online um, and connecting it to this guidebook I was literally holding in my hand from Interlibrary Loan, um, this sort of book, you know, old book from the 19th century, was definitely one of those moments uh, that, you know, us uh, nerdly historians have. Where, like, I had this hunch and here it is, you know, physically right in front of me. Um, and that became kind of the beginning of trying to figure out what the relationship of Civil War veterans um, to the, the rise of recreational camping was um, that was kind of parallel and alongside the kind of uh, conservation uh, uh, moment, right, of the late 19th century um, and complementary to it. Great. Um, I'll, I have two quick ones, one which, is, which hasn't happened yet, but I'm excited for it to happen. So the first thing um, was very early on in this research, I started 
getting interested in this topic as a master's student. And um, as I alluded to with the RGS collection, a lot of my research has been at exploratory and geographic societies that sponsored expeditions. And I went to the Explorers Club in New York City and was digging through their archives. I was looking for things related to Robert Peary and American Arctic exploration in the early 19th century. And then with about 15 minutes left to go in the day, the curator and archivist said to me, oh, um, I think we have Robert Henson's mittens. Uh, Henson was Peary's uh, second in command for those who, who aren't familiar. And he was really in a lot of ways, the brains of Peary's Arctic exploration um, in ways that take too long to go into. Um, but I said, you have his mittens? And she said, yeah, we've got these fur mittens from one of his expeditions. They're just in a closet. I'll just go get them. And so there's this amazing, what to me is just this mind blowing artifact worn by somebody that I've written about that encompasses this sort of all these cross-cultural uh, phenomena that I'm trying to write about, Inuit clothing being worn by polar explorers coming from the United States. And they're just, they're just sitting in a shoebox, you know, um, they've since been conserved, but they were, they were just there and she just brought them out and had me hold them, which was amazing. Um, and then the, the quick thing that hasn't happened, but I'm excited in October to go to the Huntington Library in LA um, and look at a copy of a book called The Art of Travel, which is a classic expedition guidebook um, published from the, uh, revised from the 1850s to 1870s. And um, I found, again, through talking to archivists at other places, that the Huntington has a copy that uh, not only is uh, an original, but it's been annotated by another explorer. So it was written by Sir Francis Galton, uh, canonical British explorer, and um, edited and annotated and criticized by one of his colleagues, uh, Francis, sorry, uh, Richard Burton, in the margins. So um, I'm sure that my mind is going to be blown when I look at that. So I'm going to mention that as well. So uh, I'll, I'll do two quick ones as well. Um, so the first one, and I'm sorry that Rachel and Sarah, you have to listen to me talk about this again, because I'm sure you've heard it before. But early on in my research, uh, I, I sort of reached out to the, the head of the Museum of Skiing in New England and just was like, can you send me anything you have about snowmaking? And one of the things he sent was uh, just this image of, of a Mohawk mountain in Connecticut with a wood chipper and people just throwing ice in the back of a wood chipper and somebody holding a massive hose and just spraying it over the mountain. And there's just these huge blocks of ice in the foreground and people skiing under it. I mean, it must've been awful. They were just being hit in the face by chunks of ice. Um, and there was just something really be uh, beautiful about that. Um, and then the, uh, the second one was actually this summer, weirdly enough, in Kansas City, which has a lot of Forest Service documents on uh, skiing in the Southwest. But there was this report on, uh, on sort of what, who's skiing and how to get more people skiing. And there was an entire page dedicated to a, they call it the ski cycle, and to a graphic imaging of this with cartoons. So there was like a little baby, and then you had like a little kid skiing and an older person in like cool goggles and stuff flying down. And I just was staring at this uh, with the archivist there, and we just couldn't fathom who for this report that said that, you know, young people ski more than older people went to the trouble of making this entire cartooned graphic in order to communicate this. All right. Well, thanks to all three of you. Um, to reiterate, uh, archives are invaluable to the work that we do as professional historians. And we are here to do that interpretive work and to make the collection that you have more important and fitting into a broader story. So we are looking forward to uh, either us or our, our future colleagues to visiting many of these collections as they come to fruition. Um, and thanks all for your work. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.